Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, examining and maybe reimagining the United States K-12 public education system from how teachers teach to what students learn. We'll discuss with a panel of education scholars. Also, Morehouse College is launching a research institute focusing on cultural and economic issues related to black men. Professors Derek Bryan and Clarissa Myrick, Myrick Harris join me to discuss all of that. Important conversations coming up, but first this, as you just heard on NPR, the head of Atlanta's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says her agency plans to update its guidance around masking and other coronavirus prevention measures soon. Dr. Rochelle Linsky says the revisions come as new COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths continue to decline nationwide. As we see the Omicron wave continue to wane, we know that you have many questions regarding what prevention strategies are really necessary for this moment, especially as people are so eager to remove them. At CDC, we provide public health guidance to help communities make decisions based on the risk at the local level, community-level guidance that offers the public information they need to stay safe and protect others. We are looking at all of our guidance based not only on where we are right now in the pandemic, but also on the tools we now have at our disposal, such as vaccines, boosters, tests, and treatments, and our latest understanding of the disease. Now, Dr. Walensky, The Walensky signaled the new guidance would relax recommendations around masking, but said Americans might be asked to put such prevention measures back in place if the pandemic gets worse. And of course, the COVID-19 situation continues to show signs of improvement here in Georgia. Newly confirmed cases and hospitalizations have been declining for weeks. In other news, the Georgia Board of Regents has named former governor and U.S. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue as the sole finalist to lead the state's university system. Our education reporter, Martha Dalton, has those details. It's been more than a year since former system chancellor Steve Wrigley announced plans to step down. Since then, the search for his successor has had fits and starts, even pausing at one point when word leaked the board was considering Purdue. Here's board chair Harold Reynolds before the vote. It's been a long process, but I'm glad that we did not rush the process to find the next chancellor to lead one of the premier university systems in the country. Reynolds said Purdue's qualified to lead the system because he served two terms as governor, worked in President Trump's cabinet, and chaired the Higher Education Committee when he was in the state Senate. But some disagree. The American Association of College Professors criticized the regent's search process, saying it lacked transparency. A final vote on Purdue can't happen before March 1st. Martha Dalton, WABE News. And finally, are you ready? Metro Atlanta will soon have another area code. 
943 will be the region's fifth area code when it launches next month. And it's the first new area code in more than a decade. The new area code is coming online about a year sooner than expected. When 943 was first announced in October of 2020, it was not expected to be needed until the spring of 2023. By the way, in case you're ever on Jeopardy, an area code contains just under 8 million usable combinations. I got codes. Not exactly how the late Nate Dog would say it, but nonetheless. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now from WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It was a landmark decision, Brown versus the Board of Education. Shortly after noon, Earl Warren, the Chief Justice of the United States, began to read a unanimous opinion of the Supreme Court, ruling in five cases in which five Negro children sought the right to go to the same schools as white children. The court said, separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Year 1954. Now, decades later, despite various policies and programs, well, there's still a racial achievement gap among students. And we know there have been countless reports, studies, legislation, and initiatives. Some have come and gone, and some still exist. But the question remains still changes to the nation's K-12 public education system need to happen. Let's welcome and return to Closer Look first, Dr. Bertina Love, the Georgia Athletic Association professor in Education Department of Educational Theory and Practice at the University of Georgia. And also, we welcome first time to the program, Dr. Ivory A. Tolson, National Director of Education and Innovation and Research for the NAACP, as well as Professor of Counseling and Psychology at Howard University and Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Negro Education. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Rose. Great to be here. This yeah, makes thank you. absolutely uh, all this week. We are examining kind of the current state of different areas. And when we think about Dr. Love, I'll start with you. We think about Brown v. Board of Education, 1954, and how that was going to change the current state of K through 12, which it did. But then we look at 2022. What are the top three concerns for you that still exist that that decision was supposed to, in a sense, do away with. Yeah, thank you so much for having this conversation and having a thoughtful conversation around education. I think oftentimes society, education is like the last thing we talk about. It should be the first thing we talk about. You know, when I think about the three things that have really impacted us since Brown, the first thing that comes to mind for me, <clears throat> excuse me, is the underfunding, right? After Brown was a strategic disinvestment, divestment from public education, right? So we saw dollars be taken away from public education, from public schools where black children and brown children were. So now data tells us that 
most public schools that are predominantly black are underfunded from anywhere from 2000 to 5000 to almost $6,000 per pupil. So black students are not receiving the equal funding that they should be receiving when we talk about Brown versus the Board of Education. Um, Build Ed, which is a policy think tank in maybe two years ago came out with a study and said that black students in this country or students of color in this country um, receive on a yearly average $23 billion less per year in school funding. That is an astronomical number to think. Mm -hmm. So I think when we think about school funding, we think about resources, we think about buildings. Also, when we think about education, black students are more likely to be taught by an uncertified teacher and a first year teacher. And then when we think about merit scholarships in this country, you have states like Georgia and Michigan who have merit scholarships. But we know that when you talk about merit scholarships, it's on merit. It has nothing to do with financial need. So we know that a large majority of people, of families who are getting merit scholarships has nothing to do with economic needs of black and brown children. But we talk about this as equal access to scholarships. It's not equal access to scholarships. So for me, those are the three things fundamentally that we need to be thinking about. When we think about this idea of equal access. It's not equal. Hmm. Dr. Tolson, what about you since 1954? Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. And it, it's interesting. My my mother came from a family uh, with about four, I mean about eight siblings, and four of them went to segregated schools, and four of them went to integrated schools. Uh, so that family was right in the middle of Brown versus Board of Education and felt the effects. And it's interesting hearing them talk about their experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, the the ones who integrated the schools in North Louisiana. Uh, they did have to deal with a lot of racial um, hostility. Um, the ones from the segregated schools, uh, they also talked about the poor conditions of the school, but they did have a sense of pride in where they were and they were affirmed for who they were. Uh, now, in terms of outcomes, they, they all turned out to be very successful. And I think that's largely because um, my grandfather was a civil rights activist and taught all of them, no matter what environment that they were in, mm -hmm. uh, to love themselves. Um, now today, um, the premise of Brown versus Board of Education still exists today, uh, that separate facilities are inherently equal. But we've learned a lot of lessons since then about the promise of Brown, about mm -hmm. how to go about realizing it. And a lot of it has to do with what Dr. Love already talked about in terms of funding. Um, something else that I don't think a lot of supporters of Brown versus Board of Education uh, understood uh, or could predict was that you can have segregated schools in integrated schools. Mm -hmm. So within school, segregation is a thing. Uh, so you can do it through your honors classes, your AP classes, uh, certain programs, uh, your special education classes, um, and the different experiences that students will have. If you have a school that is 50% Black, but 80% of the children who are getting suspended is Black, mm -hmm. then that is a segregated school. It's segregated experiences. 
and, and that's one of the, the problems that we have. Um, another problem that's very concerning is the way that we weaponize data and different metrics at the school. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I say quite often is that the achievement gap is a social construct. Um, achievement is a social construct. Um, when I ask teachers what is achievement, a lot of them don't even know how to answer that question anymore because mm. we've told them so many wacky things about what achievement is. They, they automatically start thinking about a test and the test isn't very natural to them. You know, like when they think about their own children and their own children's success and achievement in a natural process, they're not thinking about a test, but they've been conditioned to think about that with their, 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 their with the students that they teach. So when I release them from that and say, I don't want you to even think about a test, just tell me what achievement means to you. Then they start saying the things that they should be saying. It's about students who try as hard as they can, even when times are tough. It's about children who have a, a positive attitude and can get things done creatively, children who think outside the box. So the way that we've constructed the whole notion of achievement and created this achievement gap where black people are constantly trying to catch up to this artificial condition that white people have defined for us, it always leaves us in this bind. And so we're gonna go decades and decades and decades trying to live up to this thing that even the teachers don't understand fully. Perhaps so, no, yeah. that, that's maybe this is a, I, it was a few questions down, but maybe we should just go ahead and get into it as we were want to dissect, you know, where we begin to to pick this apart and examine and offer solutions. Let's talk talk about the educators to the teachers. Reimagining, and that's some of the words that people use. And then of course, Dr. Love, you and I have talked about the whole wave of I'm an education reformer. That's a whole nother conversation. Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about reexamining or reimagining how teachers teach and how we assess students and this could be a whole other segment, but we'll give it our best shot right now. Dr. Love, where do we begin with talking about how we teach teachers to teach now in the 21st century? Yeah, you know, when I was hearing Dr. Tostel talk, you know, it, it brought me to this idea that I think we can never forget is that after Brown, we lost almost 40,000 educators and principals and school folk, Black. 40,000, particularly in the South. And so we lost a huge amount of resources, of culture, of relationships that were just gone. And it's easy to understand. If I did not want my child next to a black child, I'm definitely not gonna let a black person teach them. So we lost almost 40,000 educators vanished, middle-class jobs gone. And so we think about like how, what is, what is important I think it's very important that we go back. We don't have to reimagine re this playbook, right? We can go back to those educators. And there were amazing, unbelievable educators here in Georgia, right? Vanessa Sutter Walker writes about these educators. And what they did was that they knew their students. They cared about their students. They were able to assess their students in-house. And I think people, when you say you don't, you're against tests, 
people think you're against like test. I'm not against testing. I think testing is good. Testing is great. We should test, Mm -hmm. but should it be high stakes testing? Should it be tied to corporate America? Should it be tied to big business? Should it be high stakes testing to a point that I've been with a child for 180 days and that test can now just throw away everything I've done with that child? And so we have to give the power back to teachers. We have to be thinking about portfolios. We have to be thinking about the ways in which we can see and value their work. We have to get rid of exit exams and high school exit exams. Because if I've gone to school for 12 years and I, and I fail one test, now I don't get to graduate. And what we know is that many of these exit exams for graduation also play a huge part in students not graduating and then falling into the carceral system. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of studies that say that, the you know, and also I want to be very clear that if you start in kindergarten and you go all the way through through 12th grade, you have taken almost 112 tests in the United States. This is our, this is our education system. You take between eight to 10 tests a year. We spend almost 25 to 30 hours a year on testing. I didn't say test prep. I didn't say studying for the test. I just said taking the test. We spend almost 25 to 30 hours a year. So times where, 12. So where, where, does this, where does this begin as students in terms of educators? If we're going to modify or change their approach or give the power back to them, and Dr. Totem, I'll let you want chime in too, each district has to give that power, give that, embold the educators to do that because they have to follow a certain, there may be a certain curriculum that the principal wants in the schools and that the district mandates that they teach. And if it, we're talking about K through 12, so there's a whole nother set of optics involved in terms of what the state wants. How do we combine all that? Is there a, a, a balance here? Yeah, I think it is. And I, you know, we, we have to think post-reform. And, you know, Dr. Love talks about abolitionist teaching. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's post-reform. Um, a lot of the things that we think is necessary are associated with the, the reform era. Uh, and school reform, you know, that, that began around the 1990s, you know, right after the desegregation um, movement. Um, it was when people got frustrated with de- with desegregation efforts, uh, busing, uh, uh, having having black children go to another district to go to an integrated school, only for all the white kids to leave that school and and uh, white white families moving out of entire cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, reform came when there was this idea that if we standardize everything. It was really separate but equal 2.0. So they wanted to create these standards that was across the board for everybody. And so if black people met a certain standard, then that's the reform that we were looking for. But the problem was who invented the standards? Mm -hmm. And were the standards fair? So right now we're at a place where we need to move from standardization of practice to standardization of principle. Is this something that also we can legislate ourselves out of in a sense? And I'm thinking of people don't want to, don't like it, but no child left behind and what it was Mm. supposed to do. And you came up with something, but you didn't even have (laughs) one. You didn't Mm. talk about how to fund it, but then also too, through the lens of a lot of folks, I think like you all, no Child Left Behind was severely mm-hmm. detrimental to low-income kids of color. Yeah. 
So No Child Left Behind embodied the problem that I just talked about in terms of creating standards. No Child Left Behind was based on performance on test. Um, and these were tests that continued to change, that weren't properly vetted, that had no real connection to how successful someone would be in life, only that they were determining how the, the, they were determining where you would go next. Mm -hmm. So the tests were set up for validation in that they, they weren't naturally validated on students doing well in college because it was preventing them from going to college in the first place. So that became the problem. Where we need to go legislatively or from a policy perspective, we should not have tests as determinants. And Dr. Love already said this. We should not have tests as determinants of whether someone are standardized tests as determinants of, where, uh, of, of anyone's fate. And one of the things that we saw with when we transitioned from No Child Left Behind to Race to, to the, the Top, top. Mm -hmm. we saw an encroachment of tests on white families. Because, you know, white families were protected from the whole testing industry for all of No Child Left Behind. You know, they were taking them, but they didn't mean the same thing. Private schools weren't using them at all. They still don't use them. But with No Child Left Behind, there started to be an expansion. And when Arnie Duncan came out and said, now we've found that all of these white families in the suburbs are not doing as well as they thought they were because of you know, these tests, then we saw all, all holy hell break loose. We saw an opt-out movement like we never witnessed before. Mm -hmm when these white families became subject to the same things that black families had been dealing with. Dr. Love, so, what, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. finish, um, Dr. Tolson. Go ahead, finish. Yeah, I was just going to say, so, so we all have to, have to think about how these metrics are used um, and, and how they are weaponized against us. Dr. Love, from No Child Left Behind to Race to the Top, what do you want to add? One thing I want to add is two things. First, you know, we talk about policies and how do we change policies, but there's some real things on the ground we have to address. You cannot try to pay teachers in Mississippi who make $35,000. That's not going to work. You just can't create a sustainable, robust, thoughtful, caring, loving education system when you pay people the least. We can't sit here and in the beginning of the pandemic, call teachers heroes. And then here we are three and a half, two and a half years later, and we're taking, stripping them from all power and who can wear masks and who can't wear masks, getting kicked. We have to really think about the education as the hallmark of democracy. That is what education is. It is the hallmark of, it is a pillar of democracy. And as we're watching education become anti-democratic, how are you going to recruit, retain brilliant minds to enter this field if I'm sitting here watching school boards tear each other up at the seams? And so I'm sitting here watching in Atlanta, Georgia, teachers go to jail. So the question you asked me was from no child left behind to race to the top. Mm -hmm. The one thing we don't talk about is Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia was at the center of race to the top because we got race to the top money. Mm -hmm. Sonny Perdue got $400 million, right? 
We got $400 million as a state to drill testing, to come up with an advanced testing system, a teacher evaluation system to race to the top. Now, how are you racing to the top with no ability to get there? Not quite sure, but we love the language of race to the top. So Sonny Purdue and all the education folks, they put in a, a, a grant for race to the top money. But they put that grant in using inflated scores that they knew of erasures here in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so now you have $400 million, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we are gonna take that $400 million and we're not gonna tell the department that we also have some cheating going on here in Atlanta. Then a year and a half later, 35 educators are indicted on federal RICO charges as if they are the mob. The state took the money, submitted it with these high test scores that have been approved, then turned around and said, well, those test scores, they cheated. We're not gonna say anything about the $400 million we got and we're gonna send teachers to jail. These teachers went to jail and there's a teacher on trial right now. Her name is Dana Evans mm -hmm. fighting for her life and could be going to jail any day right now. And so when we talk about race to the top and you talk about these policies and how punitive they are towards black children and black people. Black children don't pass, they are thrown away. Black teachers try to even live up to these standards, they go to jail. Well, we, we have, in a very abbreviated amount of time, tried to examine the issue from since 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education. Now we're in this COVID-19 era of teaching and its impact on black, brown, and low-income students. And we've been asking, because I've been asking this like everybody else, oh, what are the lessons learned now with COVID-19? Well, you could ask the same thing about lessons learned from 1954 as we begin to wrap up. And I promise I wish we had more time. We'll just have to bring you back. And Dr. Love, I'll start with you. In this COVID-19 era, what are you hoping that lesson, the critical lesson is learned in moving forward and how we educate kids in this nation? You know, the one thing I hope we learn is that we see how much we all need each other. If COVID didn't teach us anything is that we are connected and we all need each other. And what I want parents and I want teachers and I want policymakers to understand is that this hasn't been a waste and not to paint these children or this generation as a waste. You know, I've seen stories where this is the COVID generation. These kids are gonna be so far behind We've already thrown them away. Mm. We've already thrown these kids away. They have built skills. They have learned things. And so we need to honor that, yes, they have lost out, but it hasn't been just a waste. And if we see it as a waste, we will paint them as a waste for the next 15 years as they matriculate through schools. Dr. Tolson? Yeah, so I had a meeting with Blue Origin yesterday. And the, the VP of strategy told me that they have thousands of rocket scientists that they can ask to do any type of volunteer that they want them to do. So any school in the United States can Skype in or Zoom in a rocket scientist to talk to their students. We found out that there is no excuse for any child in this class, mm -hmm. not for suspension, not for sickness, not for going out of town to a funeral. There's no excuse because we have the technology to do it. We've found that teachers who are the most compassionate and the ones that are willing to travel 
to see their children in their own community and are flexible with assignments and things like that. We learned that they are the superior teachers, not teachers who are just so smart that they made all these great, you know, these great grades and at Emory University and all those types of things. So we've learned so much. Mm. We've learned that children can learn at home. We've learned that we've learned so much. And I just hope that we take those lessons learned and radically change education. If we go back to business as usual, then shame on us. Mm. Dr. Ivory Tolson, National Director of Education, Innovation and Research for the NAACP, as well as Professor of Counseling Psychology at Howard University and Editor-in-Chief of the Negro of the Journal of Negro Education. And Dr. Bettina Love, the Georgia Athletic Association Professor in the Education Department of Educational Theory and Practice at the University of Georgia. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being part of this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Great to see you. All right. Thanks. And Closer Look will continue in just a moment where we'll focus on a new institute launching at the Morehouse College. And speaking of the Historically Black College, we're going to air a segment right now from the archives of a series called The Search for America. It was hosted and produced by by philosophy professor Houston Smith for National Educational Television, the forerunner of PBS. And in this segment, Professor Smith is in conversation with then-president of Morehouse College, Dr. Benjamin E. Mays, for a segment titled Our Race Problem. Dr. Mays, let me begin by asking what you conceive to be the ultimate goal towards which America should be moving in this matter of race. Well, I'll begin by saying that I take very seriously the the federal constitution, the the Christian gospel, and the American dream, uh, equality and justice for all. Now, if that is true, the goal must be complete equality of opportunity to achieve and to develop in every area of American life without the imposition of the artificial barriers of race or color. Will we ever have this complete equality of opportunity for every individual that you envision until the races are completely integrated in every aspect of life? I think you... quite right if I understand the implication of your question. There will have to be complete integration before we can have this uh, equality of opportunity to to achieve and to develop. That simply means, uh, uh, Mr. Smith, that it will take a little longer than I would like for it to take. And yet, uh, American citizenship is is American citizenship. I must look forward uh, to the day when an American citizen of African ancestry will have the same opportunity to achieve and to develop as an American citizen of English ancestry, of French or or German. There are some persons who would say uh, equality, yes, but... uh... Let's keep the races uh, separate, separate but equal. As I listen to you, why uh, I get the feeling you think that this is an illusion. There will never be equality as long as there's separation. Uh, Right. Uh, As long as there is a separation. In fact, um, we've never had complete uh, separation anyway. 
and, and we don't have it, uh, don't have it now. And as long as you, you separate people on the basis of national origin, race, or color, then you're discriminating. And that, of course, is uh, un-American, unconstitutional, uh, un, uh, un-Christian. Let me ask you this, Mr. Mays. Do you think that uh, the standards of uh, value among the Negro people as a whole, for whatever reason, are in point of fact lower than those of whites? Do you know what I mean? I'm thinking of uh, things like education or resort to violence, lawlessness, things like this. Well, I, I don't quite want to tackle the word value because I think you need to do a lot of defining there. If you mean that, uh, that educationally, a group of people that have been denied equality of educational opportunities for 50, 75, or 100 or more years, uh, that uh, on the whole, uh, those people would not uh, in every particular measure up uh, with the group that have had these privileges for 7,500 years. If you mean values in, in that sense, then I, would, I, I must agree. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think we must be willing now to pay the price for what we have been doing to these people. 7,500 years. Dr. Mays, what do you foresee in the way of changing racial patterns here in the United States in the, well, in the near future, shall we say in the next decade? Uh, That's very difficult to say. You see, uh, when you look back and see the changes that have taken place in the last 20 years, and they they are tremendous and they are numerous, uh, looking back for a quarter of a century, uh, I did not believe 25 years ago that the many changes that have taken place would have taken place in 25 years. Predicating my remarks on that, I anticipate other changes in the next five or ten years moving in the same general direction of integrating all American citizens into the totality of American life. Dr. Mays, do you think that the experience of the North provides a basis for much confidence that desegregation actually leads to integration? Not much. (laughs) Not not, not much comfort. You see, um, you don't have your legalized segregation in the North, but you have plenty segregation uh, by custom, tradition, you certainly do. And things of that kind. And your residential segregation is just about, uh, just about the same well, in the North as it is in the South. And wherever you have your residential segregation, you're not going to have too much integration in the community. Are we in for violence in this area? I don't think we are in for any wholesale violence. We've had some, you know, yes. uh, here and there. No wave of race riots? Or... I, don't, I don't expect any wave of race riots. Mm-hmm. 
I think it's impossible to have a great uh, social revolution such as is going on in America, and particularly in the South right now, without uh, flare-ups of violence uh, here and there. But I don't expect any, uh, any wholesale violence. Dr. Mays, you've traveled a good bit abroad. Do you think that the pattern of race relations here in this country actually hurts us internationally? I think there's no question about that. And I think that every great American statesman who has traveled abroad within the last 20 years will confirm my statement. In 1953, when I was in India, attending the Central Committee meeting of the World Council of Churches in Lucknow, about uh, nine or ten uh, Indian newspaper reporters uh, had a conference with me, and they kept me for 90 minutes. And they would not talk about anything else but the racial situation in the United States. And I had difficulty convincing them that we were making some headway in the United States. Fortunately, I was in India in 1937, back again in 1953, and I was able to draw parallels between what, what, what was the situation in 1937 and what was the situation in 1953. But they said more than once, uh, it's very difficult for us it add up to? We have enough internally to change our way. Because of our racial, because of the, the racial situation as it is in the United States. Well, do you think that we ought to order our way of life on the basis of what other people think? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, not wholly, but... Uh, here you have millions and millions of people between, let us say, the West and Russia, uncommitted. And if our way of life in America, in the racial situation, means that the people in, in, in Asia and in the Middle East are going to uh, jump in the lap of Russia because of our racial situation in America, I certainly think we ought to change our ways. And in addition to that, though, I think deeper than that, we don't have to look outside. We have enough in our own constitution and in our Christian religion and in this American dream of which we boast about, we have enough internally to change our way. Now, when you add that to uh, America's uh, leadership in the world, and how many nations, depending upon this leadership, is mighty important that we listen to what the world says. Mm. A conversation between Professor Houston Smith, who hosted and produced a Search for America series, that segment featuring Dr. Benjamin E. Mays, then president of Morehouse College, and that taking place in between 1956 and 1959. Compelling. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues here from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It will be a first of its kind at the Morehouse College here in Atlanta, the Black Men's Research Institute, with a focus on examining the cultural, economic, personal, and social outcomes of issues affecting black men, and particularly where 
disparities exist in the world. There's a lot more to talk about this. So let's welcome Dr. Derek Bryan, Associate Director of the Black Men's Research Institute, and Dr. Clarissa Myrick Harris, Chair of the Division of Humanities and Professor of African, Africana Studies and co-author of the BMR, BMRI proposal. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose, for having us. Wow, going back, listening to Dr. Benjamin Mays, boy, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, then let's let's talk about this institute. How did all this come about? Who wants to go first? Uh, Dr. Bryant? Well, I'll, the genesis started with Dr. Mark Harris. Dr. So Mark Harris, let's get that. it, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I, I always say that the genesis for the Black Men's Research Institute really goes back to the beginning of the institution itself. Morehouse College mm -hmm. is an institution established to provide uh, opportunities for education for men primarily of African descent. And so what the institution over the last 155 years has done is to create uh, a safe space, um, a haven or an oasis, uh, an incubator, for leadership, um, men who have gone on to provide leadership mm -hmm. uh, across all sectors uh, around the world. Um, it is also an institution that has focused over time over uh, on issues of social justice, um, not only as it affects, um, as those issues affect black men, mm -hmm. but black women, black children, black families, the community uh, more broadly. But uh, to bring, things up to the present, um, conversations at the institution um, have been going on, um, I know for at least the last decade, mm -hmm. uh, about having an entity that focuses on issues directly related to Black men and the issues, disparities that, we, uh, that Black men face, inequalities, the violence against Black men, uh, and really even a little farther ago than that, 20, uh, over the last two decades, mm -hmm. uh, we've had initiatives, one called the Black male initiative uh, at Morehouse College, another called Faces of Manhood. Both of those initiatives were primarily co-curricular, uh, primarily programmatic. And unfortunately, both of those uh, initiatives disappeared when funding disappeared, mm -hmm. uh, when the money was spent. And so we are building this institute really on the foundation that was established by those earlier um, initiatives. Uh, and what we are committed to is uh, ensuring that the Black Men's Research Institute is thoroughly institutionalized and will be sustained over time uh, so that this work can continue. And, and what is unique um, about this institute is the focus on Black masculinities, Black, Black masculinity studies, meaning that we're looking at the experiences of Black men um, intersectionally. Hmm. how uh, economics, uh, race, class, as well as gender and sexuality identities impact the experiences of mm -hmm. Black men, boys, youths um, in this country and, and ultimately around the globe as well. Dr. Byron, what do you want to add to that? Yes, and as uh, Dr. Myra Harris stated, this is something that the genesis started a long time ago. So I'm a product of Morehouse, 2000, mm -hmm. 2004, and then I you know, came back and you know, we had the Morehouse Research Institute as well. So one of the things we, we've done is over the past decade that I've been back at Morehouse, we've had different iterations of programming and they've all been siloed into different disciplines, different programs, different centers. So what we've had to do is take a look at 
where we're at curricularly, uh, academically, service learning. We looked at all these things and we wanted to push that as a holistic viewpoint of what's going on with black masculinity and black masculinity studies. Um, the goal is to, you know, take the look at criminal justice, look at education, look at all these things, because we have this safe haven. We haven't fine tuned it here at Morehouse, mm -hmm. but this is part of the genesis of BMRI, fine tuning that, um, branching out into our students, our staff and our faculty. We want to kind of be the place where people go to um, for knowledge about what's going on with black men. So this is much more than just a think tank. Oh, for sure. Much more. Oh, yes, ma'am. Uh, in fact, uh, um, a major component is the development of um, curriculum, mm -hmm. uh, development specifically of a Black masculinity studies minor. Uh, and and we've, we've actually um, already uh, started that in a sense. We have courses, um, including a course that Dr. Um, Brian has developed um, for this semester, uh, a course uh, that another colleague has developed um, on uh, one called Introduction to Gender and Sexuality Studies. Uh, Dr. Um, Brian, please tell us the oh, title no of your so, course. <laughs> men in Society, we have men's health in our bio curriculum. We have black men, uh, black men, black boys in psychology for psychology, mm -hmm. um, gender in the media, all those types of courses situated in different places. Exactly. You all mentioned, and, and Dr. Mark Harris, you mentioned funding. You, there is a four-year grant coming from the Andrew Mellon Foundation. And as we just had in a previous segment and talking about education, the importance of funding. With this, what is the first phase then of this institute? Yes, well, the first phase, which we're in right now, is laying the infrastructure. And um, Dr. Bryan and I uh, actually uh, have um, just... Um, uh, finished the uh, announcement, job announcement for an executive director for the Black Men's Research Institute. Dr. Brian is a, a founding associate director, and, um, and and we will be bringing in the executive director, hopefully by the end of the summer. Is this a position that requires someone to be an academic, or do, would, are you all sort of morphing also into this, someone that has uh, expertise from a grassroots and, and social mm. community a, a background as well, or primarily academic background? Ideally so, both, right, Dr. Well, Brown? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so, um, you know, we desire someone with a, a, a graduate degree, a PhD, um, but we also as we said in the job description, I look at people in, uh, that have had experience in industry, community organizations, health organizations, yes. like th that strength, right? Because the executive director is going to bring a strength, but the Morehouse uh, Black Men's Research Institute is also going to pour into the director as well, mm -hmm. right? To have a cohesive agenda. Yes, um, we, we, yeah, we want a, a scholar activist leader. Yes. <laughs> Get your hands dirty, be in the field, <laughs> yeah. know everybody, like I said, be aware and be around because we're in a we're in a unique spot. Right. Um, we've had conversations. We've talked about how we're in the West End. Right. Mm -hmm. And we have to look at how the college itself and the men here um, are identified or interact with that community and then branch out and then branch out farther, farther. Right. So give us a different perspective. That was my next question in terms of the community, the surrounding community. We all know the importance of HBCUs. In the communities for which they are, they exist, physically exist, and the importance, and I'm imagining this is key here. Now, that's a whole nother conversation about how the West End is changing, but for now, yes. Yes, <laughs> we don't assume everybody that wants to stay can stay. So, how important is community for this institute? Um, 
for me, I think it's very important. Um, mm-hmm. Again, as an alum and being here um, for the past 10 years, you see that the community, like our students live in the community, right? They interact with the community. Um, and then there's a perception, right? There's also, if we're realistic, there's a perception that Morehouse men think they're better, they know. And, and, and again, we want to fight that as well, because if you can't have cohesion in the community, you can't yes. spread abroad in terms of discussion and the issues that you need to tackle. We need to realize that there's not one single narrative for this and be willing to open our eyes and see the different perspectives. I'm glad you said that, mm-hmm. Dr. Bryan and, and Dr. Meyer Harris. I'll let you answer this question. And I'll go back to you, Dr. Bryan, because someone listening may say, "Okay, then explain this to me. What is the mission of this institute of the Black Male Research Institute? You know, how yeah. do you envelop everything as you just said, so folks have a clear understanding what this is all about, Dr. Meyer Harris? Yes." Yes. Uh, well, uh, um, a major, a major consideration, uh, a major reason for the establishment of this institute is in looking at the world today and, and what's been going on really um, more uh, intensely in the last two and a half years during the time of COVID mm-hmm. and the time of racial reckoning, you know, the murders of so many uh, young Black men, young Black women as well, mm-hmm. um, and the assaults on the black community uh, in a number of ways, whether you're looking at physical assault or looking at assault uh, in terms of the denial of reality and history in terms of assaults on what has been called critical race theory, but um, and that's another conversation in itself. But um, <laughs> the, the attempts, and we know that just within the last week or so, um, a state legislature, I won't name, well, why not? Uh, Representative uh, David Knight, Uh, put forth a letter to the chancellor of the university system of Georgia, essentially uh, saying that uh, we need to know every dollar you have spent on hiring um, diverse people of diverse populations, people of color, um, every dollar you have spent on curriculum related uh, to diversity, related to LGBTQ, um, anything related to telling the true story in terms of our history. And so um, really, they, he's, I think he even says in the letter, you know, they're thinking there's been too much money spent on these things. So you're going to cut back. I'll bring you back for that conversation because we are also working to get the, uh, the lawmaker on with that. Uh, Dr. Bryan, as we wrap up in terms of the mission and folks wanting a clear understanding, what do you want to add to what Dr. Myrick Harris said? We want to be the incubator for change, right? We want to add a more suitable narrative to the one that exists out there for Black men already. Um, And we want to push a narrative that's widespread, exists along a a continuum, right, a spectrum. And again, it's from a vantage point that everyone can see, because we talk about a spectrum. If I'm sitting here in the middle, unless I step out and look down and look right, I can't see anything else, right? So we want people to step out of who they are. Um, so again, we want to con- we want to contribute to that narrative. We want to have internal conversations and external conversations. We want to have domestic and international conversations. We want to have heterosexual, homosexual conversations, right? We want to have this dialogue to push it out there. So again, we want to look at it from you know the humanities and humanistic social sciences and see what's emerged in that context. So examining and just one other thing that's so very important. Um, we want to make sure that in our um, discussions and the scholarship and the discourse that um, it's not looking at black men from a deficit 
model, deficit mentality. We will focus on those efforts, those initiatives, those individuals who have not only survived, but thrived in spite of the inequalities and disparities that exist in society. And so that is extremely important as we prepare and educate our young black men in particular, but then the community more broadly, there are ways mm -hmm. to overcome, there are ways to change, and there are ways to thrive in the mm -hmm. society. Dr. Clarissa Myrick Harris, Chair of the Division of Humanities and Professor of Africana Studies and co-author of the proposal. And then also we heard, with, heard from Dr. Derek Bryan, Associate Director of the new Black Men's Research Institute at the Morehouse College. Thank you so both. Thank you both so much for talking about this. Good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And before we wrap up, congratulations, Busy Bee Cafe. They've earned a James Beard Award. We'll have more on that tomorrow. Congratulations, Busy Bee. Y'all know. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel are our producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.